tuning in to the World XP Podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please remember to drop a sub, drop a like, and leave your thoughts down below in the comments. With that, we will see you guys in the podcast. Welcome, Charlotte, to the World XP Podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come talk with, uh, with me and the rest of us today. Um, so for those listening, Charlotte's professor of television studies, and I'm not going to try and butcher what that is. So welcome. And if you can go ahead and introduce yourself, kind of what television studies is, why it's important and, and all that sort of stuff, that would be fantastic. Sure. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. I'm Charlotte Howell. My technical position name is I'm an assistant professor of film and television studies at Boston University. Uh, but my focus is television studies. And I was lucky enough to be hired specifically to teach and research um, that field. And so television studies is a relatively new kind of academic field. Um, It arose out of a combination of things uh, in the 70s, but really in the 1980s was where um, it coalesced into a kind of... um, the thing in and of itself, right? Uh, Not just an offshoot of media studies or an offshoot of popular culture studies. Um, And so television studies, as it evolved, comes from the UK um, partially. And then when it comes to US kind of colleges and universities in particular, it takes on a slightly different tinge. But in essence, um, television studies takes the kind of study of television as a medium, as a uh, social practice, um, as a field of entertainment, as an industry, um, as an object of fandom sometimes, basically any way that television interacts with life on earth (laughs) um, can be a part of television. But the, the approach that I and that a lot of like US and UK academics arise out of for the field Um, comes from a cultural studies approach, which is the aesthetics and the form and the kind of text of television is an important part of television, but it's not the only part of television, right? Um, Television operates in kind of a circuit of culture that is influenced at every point of contact by the creator's import meaning, the receiver's audience's import meaning, the regulators that television has to, and regulations that television has to go through, um, import meaning and, and power, advertisers, media industry executives, at all of these different uh, levels. And so what we get is this really complex form of entertainment that also shapes our lives, um, it impacts us, and is a way of kind of shaping and being shaped by reflecting and reflective of uh, the wider culture and various changes. Gotcha. And obviously before we're talking about the impact on soccer specifically, but before we get to that, I, given that television is relatively new in the span of human existence, and it already seems to be kind of phasing out, like I don't really watch TV as it's traditionally known anymore. I stream more often even if it's like on youtube or whatever Mm -hmm. and a lot of people i know are in the same like boat they're either watching netflix or hulu or like prime 
so how is the field shifting with this shift in because there's other like um comedians for example used to want to go to get their hbo or comedy central special and now they're releasing specials on youtube instead like Mm -hmm. it seems to be a big shift so how is the how is your field of study changing with this shift yeah i mean that's part of the beauty of looking at television not just as the text like the um broadcast signal over the air to a traditional television set or through cable lines to a traditional television set um that has television studies has always been pretty expansive Mm. Um, looking at kind of television as a social practice in addition to the technology or the text itself Um, and so that means that all those ways of watching streaming on demand uh, on Netflix on Hulu even on YouTube um, a lot of that follows the same kind of structures the same way of viewing in your home, in your personal private space um, as traditional television. And so television studies is basically just incorporated, talking about the specificity of what it means, what changes when you get to choose your own timeline of watching, how many episodes you get to watch at the time, um, but also the vast majority of things you're watching on those sites, YouTube accepted because it's a little bit different. But mm-hmm. Netflix, Hulu, Paramount Plus, Amazon, or Apple, Amazon, Apple Plus, uh, Pluto, Roku TV, all of those, the vast majority of programming is being produced by the same companies that produce traditional television. And the vast majority of context, content in those libraries is um, episodic or serialized episodic mm-hmm. uh, storytelling, right? So more than just a kind of two-hour movie contained in the story ends at the end of it. Most of it is ongoing series, um, whether they be anthology series like Black Mirror or really highly serialized series like, you know, Ozark or Peaky Blinders or a mix of the two, um, like, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Paramount Plus, right? Um, the form that you're still engaging with is, in essence, television. And that mm-hmm. is increasingly true even on streaming spaces because ad-based streaming services are becoming more and more prevalent. Netflix even is floating the idea of um, creating an ad-based subscription tier where you would pay a subscription, but it would be less than the 14 or $15 a month but you'd get ads interspersed, which is traditional television. And then it brings the influence of advertisers into that kind of sacrosanct uh, subscription-based tier. Just because what we're starting to see is purely basing your profits on unparalleled subscription user growth is not the way to longstanding stability. And so advertising revenue can create a more stable kind of additional space and so that's why we're seeing that more and more um in even places like netflix that built their name on being different from regular television yeah for sure i have noticed that actually when watching it's like it's basically the same as how tv used to be it's just you can pick and choose when you want to watch what you want to watch that's because us you know there are a couple of different um 
kind of major players in streaming television world, mm-hmm. right? So Netflix and Apple and Amazon are kind of more traditionally like tech companies that moved in to yeah. entertainment media. Um, and so they can be a little disruptive, a little bit different, um, but they are looking more and more like traditional TV. And the rest of what's dominating in the last few years are all studio-based platforms. Mm. Um, you know, HBO Max is the main Warner Media outlet, Paramount Plus, Paramount. Um, Hulu is the kind of stuff that doesn't work on Disney Plus branch of Disney. Um, they can own two-thirds of it, are set to have total ownership in the next few years, and um, have control of it over it essentially mm-hmm. peacock is comcast um and that's just kind of those are those companies paramount comcast and it's kind of um after it bought up nbc universal right nbc has been in the broadcast business they were the very first national network broadcast company starting in 1926 they started broadcasting national network radio Mm. Um, you know, uh, Paramount has been, uh, making television for decades. Uh, and of course CBS is part of Paramount, um, global now, you know, Disney bought up ABC in 1995, but really started a tight partnership with that national TV network in 1954, uh, with, uh, a, an anthology series called Disneyland that culminated in a live broadcast from the opening of Disneyland in 1955. So all of these companies are deeply invested in and know how to make profits on kind of television as it's been and broadcasting as it's been in the last, you know, nearly a century. Yeah. And they've they've done a great job of adapting in the last five years, I guess, five to ten years. But I, I want to touch on I had two thoughts that came up. The, the last one is CNN seems to have failed to adapt. They had their CNN Plus that they invested a bunch of money in, and then it tanked. But also, so one so one question is why do you think that is? But the second question that is more sort of broad is I stopped watching tv even the streaming services i don't really watch and started going to youtube maybe 10 years ago mm-hmm. um and i know a lot of my friends people my age um have done that and i it seems to me that the streaming services were a way to for these companies to co- not combat but to compete i guess with with the growing because if you look at somebody like Mr. Beast, for example, like he makes so much money on his videos that he's able to create sets in the same way that these companies are. Mm-hmm. And like, for example, he did a remake of Squid Games. I didn't watch it, but apparently he got more views than actual Squid Games. And he did a parody and it was like more views than the actual show. So what are, I don't know if you've delved into that or do, if you have thoughts on that sort of phenomenon, but I guess those two sorts of thoughts popped in. I don't know what your thoughts are on those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, one of the courses I teach is a course all on streaming television, and we talk about kind of YouTube as part of that. Um, So we'll get to that in a minute. But the CNN and CNN Plus story is really interesting for somebody who studies, especially kind of um, media industries, right? Mm -hmm. Because 
CNN Plus was an attempt to try and kind of um, create a streaming uh, brand for what was a crown jewel in kind of cable packages. Uh, CNN was one of the early cable channels to launch, really kind of helped to push um, Turner Media as, as one of the kind of prime, primary successful multi-channel uh, corporations in the like late 1970s, early 1980s cable sphere. Um, Ted Turner really did kind of get in on the ground floor of the new technology of cable. And so when streaming was leaving kind of behind that aspect of kind of the Turner Media brand that had since that point been folded into Warner Brothers and Warner Media, um, the people in charge were like, we have to try, right? We have to try and get a foothold in this space because that's where it seems like everything's going. What happened was the merger with Discovery um, and Discovery Plus in the middle of that launch, essentially. Um, so Warner Media had been kind of rumored to be buying and merging with Discovery Plus to make a new, even bigger, like massive conglomerate, uh, media conglomerate. And the merger was approved meaning uh, it had to be approved by the government to, so that it's not like violating antitrust law, uh, which is very mm -hmm. broad in the U.S. Um, because combined, it's going to be a massive percentage of all media production and, and distribution. Right. Um, so it was approved basically in the first month of the launch of Discovery Plus. And when a major me media merger like that happens, then... Basically, executives, most of the executives who were real bullish on CNN Plus were pushed out and replaced with media executives at the giant parent company um, and put in charge of the CNN branch uh, uh, within Warner Media, who hated the idea. And so mm. it wasn't, there were a lot of factors that went into its failure, first and foremost, that like, for streaming TV, it's so much reliant on the kind of on-demand nature. How that meshes with live 24-hour news was something that was always going to be a little bit tense. Um, but the other thing was that in that, those, those early weeks, because of the changes happening at the larger media corporation, and then actually like pushing out the executives who are pro uh, for the streaming service, it didn't have the marketing push. It didn't have the time to develop a user, user base. Basically, as soon as the new executives came in and they had enough reason to ax it, they did. Um, that was the reason why it ended. It, and that's the thing that we kind of lose sight of sometimes is that for all that the media ecosystem is so massive and diffuse. The decisions of a couple of executives at the top are still defining and determining so much of what we get to see and how we see it um, that it's really kind of astounding. Uh, so that's the CNN plus thing. It's really about corporate mergers mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it, more than anything else. And then with regard to YouTube, right? YouTube, you know, 
really, really young as far as media companies. Uh, Netflix yeah. is a media company is older because it got started as straight to uh, your home DVD rentals through the mail, right? Um, but late nineties, right? Yes, yeah. and but Netflix starts in the mid uh, aughts, the mid two thousands, and it has like as you've said, there are various studies out now saying that like for Gen Z, for people in their kind of twenties and younger that YouTube is the primary media platform that they engage with, that they watch. Right. Um, but what are they watching? It's a lot of nonfiction user generated content. Um, a lot of it is also like remixes or in conversation with media on other platforms, you know, like mm-hmm. MCU based YouTube shows talking about the those kind of movies and the superheroes or deconstructing Stranger Things mysteries or, you know, that whole um, subcategory of like fan culture shows, um, which is really popular. And I think part of it is that it does get at a kind of it moves so much quicker than standard television, especially scripted mm-hmm. standard television. Uh, there's a lot of sense that it's more authentic because it's coming from individuals who like um, are kind of cultivating this uh, seemingly um, closer relationship with the viewers through this kind of more um, one-on-one uh, YouTube situation, you know, a lot less uh, gatekeeping around them. So mm-hmm. authenticity is often kind of really praised. Um But the other thing to consider is that, like, you don't need a subscription service to watch YouTube, and many of the videos are relatively short. So even if you don't have very good broadband service um, or, you know, uh, really strong even kind of cell digital service, you can watch Mm -hmm. them versus the, like, high technical production values, 4K streaming uh, on the more traditional uh, streaming platforms, which can be really difficult to access mm-hmm. if you're if you don't have good broadband internet. Which there are actually thousands and thousands of people in this country and millions all over the world who don't have that. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, so the comparison of the number of views for a YouTube video or even kind of a YouTube channel versus a Netflix or a Hulu or an Amazon is apples and oranges because of access, right? Um, But that also, what that gets to is kind of one of the fundamental um, things that we look at in television studies, which is when and how does the type of audience matter versus the number of the audience matters, right? Mm -hmm. Because YouTube, some top level creators do get a amazing amount of money from mm-hmm. their YouTube channel, right? Like yeah. Mr. Beast or, you know, in the children's TV square, like Blippi <laughs> is just everywhere. Um, you know, and, and those kind of high level YouTube personalities can make their living and then some on YouTube. But that is rarefied air, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the content that's on YouTube, people are getting little to no money for. And instead the money is going to Alphabet, right? right? The parent technological company of Google and and YouTube. And so 
YouTube loves that. That company loves the fact that like more young people are watching it because that means that they get all this money from advertisers and they don't have to pay creatives Mm -hmm. very much. They're getting so much free content from people and free labor essentially for very little payoff because it does kind of, it's accessible. People can launch their brand from Mm -hmm. YouTube, you know, like Issa Rae, uh, notably uh, in the early 2010s, wasn't getting the opportunities in the standard kind of tracks of Hollywood uh, film and TV production. And so she created her own web series, partially crowdfunded, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, that got her notice, got her attention, and led to the deal with HBO that included developing Insecure, Mm. right? Um, And so people look at that as like, well, this is a way of getting notice and then moving into a more stable and lucrative job in the industry. Um, And that is kind of the middle ground for a lot of content producers. But the vast majority of content is people not getting paid for it, just their own time, their own effort, making money for a giant tech company. Um, And so, but like so much of the content there that you watch are just like remix, they're clips from other things, right? Mm -hmm. Utilizing these other aspects of industry. So no aspect of the kind of media ecosystem can exist on its own. Like what happens when you can no longer like pull highlight clips or watch highlight clips from say, you know, soccer games and watch Mm -hmm. those on YouTube to catch up for the show that you didn't have the like Paramount plus subscription to watch or what have you. Yeah, that makes sense. So to your point about creators not making that much money, if they're not the big ones. Yes, that's very true. But also there's people that I know that I read their own ads. Like, for example, I post this on, I know it's not YouTube, but for for the sake of an example, I post this on Anchor. And on Anchor, I've got like an Anchor ambassador ad where I read out like, oh, Anchor is like a great place. And like, again, I don't get paid very much, but there's, it's not the traditional or not even, it's not the ad that YouTube puts in. It's like they read their own, like they have a deal with their own company that they read an ad for and throw it in there. So that is one way to get, I know a lot of people that do that. Um, And that's a way to get around it. But also to to your point about the the authenticity of the YouTube space, obviously I'm a bit biased because that's what I consume, but they're the ability of taking the, biggest creators aside the who have zillions of comments to go through the one there are like the people that there are people like the mid-level size who are in like the tens of thousands to low hundreds of thousands that take the time to go through the comments and respond to people whether it's you're scrolling through and responding or not it gives at least the the feeling of and and then then like in the next video they'll say oh i saw your comments and so we're going to change this or change that and I was wondering, the word that you used that stuck out to me was the, the word seemingly. And I w- was wondering why you used that word. Um, I used seemingly because fundamentally when we step in front of a camera, when we are performing in public, uh, it is an aspect of sure. ourselves, right? Um, and so I don't want to 
disparage the authenticity. I do think, you know, there's a lot of people who really do um, try to put their authentic self forward, but it's always going to be mediated because this is a media form, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, yes, they might go through and read the comments, but what comment, how, how many do they get through, right? Is it just yeah. the top 30? Is it just the top 50? Which ones do they highlight? There's always a degree of cultivation, mm-hmm. um, you know, just because also there's a lot of spam out there and trolling and all of these different ways that engagement can be both incredibly positive and really cultivate um, kind of a either parasocial or like slightly more um, kind of connection mm-hmm. between the viewers and the creator. Um, but that's with a platform as open as YouTube, especially, there's just no way, because also the algorithm filters out certain things, there's yeah. certain comments that aren't allowed to post. Um, and so there's just the kind of full authentic self is always going to be through filters yeah of course but i'd I'd say more like the reason i feel like a lot of people like for example show like uh you know what breaking points is i don't um it's like a new show with um sagar and jetty and crystal ball and they used to be on um they used to do a show on youtube for um the hill called i think Mm -hmm. rising um, and they broke away and did their own show. I think people follow them because they feel like they're getting their mostly real opinions rather than something that's scripted. So to your point about there always being filters, yeah, I totally agree with that. That's, that's always going to be part of a media thing regardless of what you do, but there's they don't have the – they can cover the stories that they want to cover. They can They don't have to, like – pass through hoops to like your gatekeepers point there's less gatekeepers so it gives a yeah i i I think i think a lot of people have lost um some like faith or trust in in more traditional like news outlets and so this is a way for people to be like yeah i I trust what they're saying so to your point is like yes it always filters but but still I mean, the the converse of that is, because I do, you know, it's one of those, like, we're stuck between two terrible options in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways, right? Especially when it comes to news and reporting, Um, because, you know, certainly there's a lot wrong with traditional kind of news media, in particular, the way that, like, private equity firms have basically hollowed out local newsrooms and, um, you know, uh, broadcasting company conglomerates like Sinclair or, or uh, Nexstar have kind of gobbled up as ownership groups of local TV stations um, that really kind of diminishes the, the local <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there are things about traditional news media that in the kind of striking out on your own, not to disparage any particular news anchor, but like part of what a lot of people kind of, part of the filters and the gatekeeping of news media is about getting your facts right. 
and mm -hmm. employing fact checkers um, to go through and make sure that all the reporting is correct and that all the quotes are correct and all those things. Um, and oftentimes what we see when people kind of move out and do on their own, there is just because of economics kind of less money to pay full-time fact checkers. Sure. Um, and so you, that, and that goes hand in hand with, you know, when you're on an ad-based medium or in particular when you have, um, you know, sponsored content or paid sponsors, like you were talking about your ad, right? Mm -hmm. That is integrated advertising, what went hand in hand with the launch of broadcasting and television mm -hmm. in the US. Um, but there were issues with how that then affected potentially uh, news broadcasting, right? There were like mm -hmm. some aspects of the early years of broadcasting where news broadcasts were sponsored by like a single sponsor, a company that kind of paid to help um, produce the show. That was the norm for radio and television all the way through to about early 1960s. Right. Um, and even if they didn't kind of, the advertiser was like, we don't want you to cover this, um, which is very rare. And I'm sure, you know, you don't have that with your sponsor. Um, no, but, 30, 30 people listen, they don't care. <laughs> yeah. But the mere fact of knowing that your money comes from this company mm -hmm. can sometimes influence the mm. the newscasters the way that they approach finding information who they trust uh, as far as sources things like that uh, that can can it's a a bias that can be kind of negotiated it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily just dis disprove the validity of that reporting but it is one of the things that like in traditional media or at least decades ago um, you know, oftentimes there was a kind of a separation of some sorts between the advertising department and the yeah. news department. Um, yeah. Right. And so that's something to be negotiated and just be aware of when we're consuming, you know, it's, I think that um, more freedom to produce the content that speaks to you, that speaks to your audience, that doesn't have room in these traditional kind of media places is a wonderful thing but whenever these changes are occurring there's always some cost that just yeah. needs to be kind of acknowledged in that tradition and then the other the issue with youtube that has come up again and again is that you know without the kind of gatekeeping and editorial process in particular there's a lot of room for spread of misinformation that then gets kind of promoted by the algorithm um, because the you know, like algorithms are constructed to maximize views. Right. Um, and so you maximize views oftentimes by heightened emotions, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that gets engagement, that gets more views, that gets spread and virality. Um, and so that's why we've seen things like, you know, misinformation movements and and all, you know, hate groups uh, really finding purchase in places like YouTube. Um, and, you know, the platform, because it's open, because it's there for everybody, because it doesn't have gatekeepers or editorial boards, we see it on Facebook, but YouTube as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's a lot of issue about there's nothing to check when something is blatantly false, blatantly racist, blatantly anti-Semitic, blatantly, you know, um, mm-hmm. white supremacist. So that's just kind of the price we pay for some of this other content. And so this is why I think a television studies approach really helps to see all the different players in this, right? Because a television television studies primarily arose out of like cultural studies um, and a kind of Birmingham school cultural studies approach, which is all about how power operates in this seemingly kind of everyday medium of television, right? And so television studies, um, as it has evolved, the kind of primary thread is really concerned with how power impacts, shapes, is shaped by television. And so following the money, thinking about who benefits from these Mm -hmm. changes in how we consume kind of medium, the everyday medium of television or YouTube, um, that's where I'm coming from with this, is like thinking about the big picture and then how it trickles down to these kind of wonderful examples of really kind of pushing the medium of broadcasting news or creating satirical content or cultivating relationship with your viewers Um, and just thinking about the full kind of to put it in capitalist terms right cost benefit analysis Mm -hmm. it's a lot to unpack there let me throw something at you and and i want to hear your thoughts you mentioned like the economic of having getting your facts right and the fact checkers and that sort of thing now, I want to use an example that's been, that's, there's no dispute about any, do you remember the Covington kids back in like 2017 or 2016 or whatever? They were on, um, that kid was wearing the, the MAGA hat and the, there's oh, a, a picture of him the went around. Indigenous, uh, yeah. 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 And CNN came out and said that he was antagonizing the indigenous guy. And it came out later that it was actually the other way around. And the picture was very misleading. And then he sued CNN for some, ungodly amount of money to your point about having economics of having the fact checkers they ran that story and it and it was wrong and i'm not trying to get into like the the politics of the situation i I want to get into the media from the sense of they have the money to do that but they still ran the story and ended up getting in a lawsuit because of it and to me when you have um like, for example, the Russell Brands of the world or, like, the Daily Wire to use an economic example of – I don't pay much attention to the Daily Wire because it's whatever, but they're building sort of a – they have the economics as well to do that sort of thing. So to your point about YouTube and having um, unfettered content, it's like, yes, but without some of YouTube, then maybe it wouldn't have come out that that was that the Covington kids case, that, that that was the actual situation. And a lot of times I don't, this is a personal thing. I don't mind if people get it wrong as long as they come out and like, hey, we got it wrong. And I don't, I think CNN did that. I don't, well, I don't know. If, anyways, what are your thoughts on that situation? Because I, I feel like there's a, a bit of a, a two-way street there. It's like, yes, I agree with your point that those big media companies have more economics to help with the reporting, but also we see that they get things wrong sometimes. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on that 
on the that phenomenon rather than at that situation. Just I was just using it as an example. Yeah. Um, I don't know enough facts about the case to mm-hmm. speak on it. Um, sure. But I will say that what we've seen in the last few years, especially at CNN under the leadership of Jeff Zucker, mm-hmm. was a kind of a pursuit of um, the kind of viral news. Like there was a little bit of the Twitter tail wagging the CNN dog um, mm, with certain mm-hmm. stories like that, where something yeah. goes viral on Twitter. And because Twitter as a social media platform skews really highly towards uh, educational elites and media practitioners, right. both in terms of news and, um, uh, you know, non-fictional, con- you know, scripted content, that uh, it amplifies events in a way that you know newsrooms suddenly think these things are like really big stories when it's just you know 2,000 people on Twitter reacting uh, to them and so we do see some of that happening just generally I don't remember if that was the specific case uh, with this and you know I think it was The, the picture went viral on Twitter and then CNN picked it up and then it came out and then it came out that the kid had sued CNN for like some stupid amount of money because it was they reported right. on it wrong and like they were calling him a white supremacist and different things and like it's it's not it's just it's it's to your point about the economics of the fact checking rather rather than that specific story right and and we've seen various kind of um so-called trusted name in news companies that have cut back as part of cost-saving measures at their companies, especially when new leadership comes in, is cut back on Mm -hmm. their, like, fact-checking groups. So it's not something that, you know, all traditional news media has, but it's just in a couple of places that's still one of the only major places where we have a significant attention to that. Um, And so it's, you know, it's not... Nothing is wholly one way or wholly the other. Um, yeah. And it just, you know, a lot of it changes based on how is the economy doing? How are they doing in their ad sales for that year? Who's in charge at the network? How have they kind of restructured things? Um, yeah. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because I had noticed throughout the new, both with Fox and CNN, it was a, like you were talking about the Twitter influence on them. Um, I had noticed that a lot during the 20, like coming up to 2016 election. And that was when I had, because I had still kind of, I like to, I try to pay attention to things. I want to be informed generally as just a, a person. And when that started happening, when I would see a picture on Twitter and then the next day, like I'd see a new thing pop up on CNN or Fox or whatever. And I'd be like, like guys what are you like what are you guys doing and then that was that was for me the tipping point of like you know what let me go find the 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 tim pools of the world or the russell brands of the world or the the crystals and sagas of the world to to see what's going on and try and consume from different like points of view and then draw my own conclusions um but it's hard to do that because you really have to go searching it out yeah um and and, and the necessities of kind of the modern media landscape means that oftentimes the companies that have the still have the means and like a really strong 
fact-checking, mm -hmm. investigative teams in order to support those have to add a paywall for digital access because yeah. especially for newspapers, um, you know, like the traditional newspaper subscription model has basically bottomed out in a lot of of yeah. places so like the la times mm -hmm. um you know has a really strong investigative team new york times still does a lot of uh, really key investigations but when it's behind a paywall it becomes really difficult to access but that's you know that's something that we see just across all media is you know there are um you know really interesting kind of approaches to the news on subscription-based streaming mm -hmm. platforms. But, you know, like, uh, this is part of the reason why, like, last week with John Oliver mm -hmm. puts a lot of their clips uh, in kind of, like, 10-minute yeah. segments on YouTube uh, is because they really want to kind of get some of that reporting out there instead of behind the paywall at HBO or HBO Max. Yeah, a lot of people do. I think uh, Bill Maher was doing that as well and, like, some of the others – started to do that um and you can get yeah you can yeah and of course it's it. also promoting the show <laughs> yeah yeah it's twofold there um we were talking beforehand you have started to come into the soccer sort of world of things how did that come about is that something that you've always been interested in or can you kind of walk us through that are you doing is sure. it a specific project or research or is it just yeah. a general interest that you're doing yeah, I am um, starting work on my second book. Okay. Um, I'm starting to research my second book. My first book came out of my PhD dissertation, and it was a study of how um, kind of like writers, executive producers, uh, TV executives thought about and negotiated representing Christianity in primetime dramas, mm. uh, including some streaming dramas from like 1996 to 2016, looking at that as a, as a way to understand how the changing audience for television, as more people cut the cord, as more people went to, you know, over the top services like streaming and Netflix or YouTube, um, changed kind of what was seen as acceptable in terms of representing Christianity, how it was kind of uh, changed and negotiated as the kind of TV audience changed throughout that period. Um, so I'm always really interested in uh, the core of kind of my research interest lies around what audiences matter to the television industry and how that shapes how television gets produced and packaged, mm. um, like in American media. And so as I was wrapping up um, my research and publication of that, that book came out in 2020, Oxford University Press, if anybody's interested, uh, Divine we'll put Programming. The link in, we'll put the link in the description. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've been a soccer fan all my life. I've been playing since I was five. I still play. Uh, I, you know, was part of the generation of girls watching the 99ers and just fell in love with women's soccer first. And then as the Premier League became available in the U.S., my little Anglo, you know, file heart was like, well, yes, this is something for me. Um, and, you know, as I got more into watching the Premier League, I also was like listening to the Men in Blazers podcast. That's a good um, one is great. Uh, and then following them from, you know, like their little shows that they did at the Rio World Cup 
transitioning to getting a TV show on NBC Sports, and then I actually went to BlazerCon, which was their fan convention, um, for research purposes, because I was like, yeah, I've got to see what this looks like in person. Uh, and that was where kind of everything coalesced in a way for me. I was like, when I get through with this dissertation project, this is the next big thing. Um, because so much of what I saw really perpetuated this idea of who watches soccer in the U.S. And it is a middle and upper middle class group that is primarily white, primarily coastal, primarily affluent. Like there was a, you know, upscale tweed suit and tailoring output at BlazerCon. They brought in two of the starters, like Dex McCarthy and uh, I can't remember who else, to come and play, um, you know, FIFA video games with attendees for an hour. I was just like the amount of money and it was a $300 pass for, you know, a day and a half essentially of content mm -hmm. um, in Greenpoint in Brooklyn, which was a very expensive place to be. It was like I walked for a mile to try and find a, something for lunch under like $10. Um, and it was just such a fascinating exploration of what this fandom, the kind of that could afford to go to this uh, kind of event looked like uh, and acted like and spent like, right? Um, and that went alongside with, I started noticing the Premier League, you know, morning show saying, you know, retweeting and posting images from people's Twitter about my Premier League morning. Yeah. And the amount of screen, like, just so many times where it's just like somebody is in their basement all Saturday morning with a giant TV screen and three computers and two tablets all open so they can watch all the games and then posting it. I was just I've like, never done that. I, I mean, I've, I've done two or three screens at various mm. points, but like we have to consider who can afford that much yeah. technology and who can afford to be, you know, not doing childcare and not working on a Saturday morning mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, four hours at yeah. a time. And like in these big cavernous rooms that are very typical of upper middle class kind of suburban homes in the basement, a room just for kind of the TV. Um, and so all of these different things pointed to what I had suspected for a while was that, oh, you know, Tele televised soccer outside of like major world cup and sometimes olympic events um just cannot compete in terms of numbers with the viewership of the big four sports uh in the u.s being american football basketball hockey and baseball and being a television scholar i had seen in scripted television this transition of okay the mass audience no longer really exists. We can no longer guarantee like 15 million viewers, 20 million viewers, or, you know, like at the height of friends, sometimes 30 million viewers uh, for a primetime show for certainly not, you know, maybe we can get 40 million for the Super Bowl. Um, but, you know, scripted TV was the story of the 90s into the 2010s was the turn from a primary focus on the mass audience, getting as many viewers as possible, to a 
kind of much more focused attention to a coalition of upscale audiences that they could upsell advertisers for. So advertisers would pay a premium for the types of audiences they thought had more spending money, mm -hmm. um, which would counter to low numbers, right? So like Mad Men in the aughts is a prime example, like barely ever cracked a million viewers live, but because those viewers could be demographically shown to be upscale educated coastal elites, they're like, oh, well, you know, Mercedes or BMW will pay a premium for less quantity viewers, higher quality viewers. Mm -hmm. Quality meaning like value to the advertiser. Right. Um, and so, so much of television studies in that transition was tracing that. There's a great book called Legitimating Television by um, Newman and Levine that talks about this. Um, and then I was like, oh my God, that's what's happening with soccer in this TV context, right? Soccer in the US, because of its European appeal, because of the demographic makeup of who plays historically, because of the US soccer system, kind of pay to play system in the US, um, that is what this framing reflects, right? Mm -hmm. It's clearly, you know, why did NBC pay $6 billion in, I think it was 2012, uh, for a couple of years of the Premier League, right? Just like blew out any other um, bid for the U.S. broadcasting rights. It was because, and executives had said this at the time, it was like, that audience is very valuable to us, even if we only get, you know, 250,000 viewers on a Saturday morning. That yeah. 250,000 viewers, one, helps up the subscribers to our uh, NBC Sports Cable channel, RIP. Um, <laughs> and two, right, we can get a lot more money of advertisers for relatively fewer viewers. Um, yeah. And so my next book project is really kind of tracing that at various levels of the American TV industry and how, um, you know, MLS and Liga MX, which generally outdoes any other uh, soccer league competition on U.S. television in mm -hmm. terms of numbers, but because they are Spanish language broadcasts, nobody in the TV industry pays as much attention um, because part of the consequence of like studying how which audiences matter is that the kind of systems of economic opportunity in the U.S. are then mm -hmm. perpetuated in terms of who advertisers think and can make the most money for them or are mm -hmm. most apt to spend money on the products that they're selling. Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to ask you about Liga MX because I have a lot of teammates from Mexican or like El Salvadorian or Guatemalan descent. And they all like when I'm hanging out with them, there's always <clears throat> it's always Spanish broadcasting. Yeah. Regardless of what the league is. And so I was wondering, like. Is are the numbers are the like the demographic of people watching? Is that specifically Premier League and MLS or does that encompass everything like Bundesliga like the ESPN plus demographic as well like all of that stuff because I know people who will um and obviously this is anecdotal right you've done all the research I've done no research but I'm um, still in early days of my yeah. research so I'm Good. I'm still getting the full figures and it's really honestly um for streaming platforms mm -hmm. 
it is nearly impossible to get accurate data uh, other mm. than like they're yeah because they don't have to disclose it other than in kind of shareholder reports which can be hard right. to get on and there is no outside um company that is kind of one company providing um detailed ratings demographics like nielsen has a, an approach to doing some streaming uh, mm -hmm. kind of ratings data of how many people are watching or whatever, but they don't have full access. And all of these companies that do streaming um, are mostly kind of, they will only re reveal that to advertisers in all kind of closed session things because they want, and the only data they'll release is stuff that makes them look good. And there's even a note, um, there was a news story recently that Netflix actually, I think it was Netflix, um, changed how they measured their audience data so that uh, a recent release could be the most watched thing on its platform so that they could claim mm. that right it's all black box mm. behind the screen yeah. we don't have access to it so instead a lot of what i do is using what is released but also looking at kind of patterns of ads and promos mm -hmm. where the kind of promotional money is spent yeah. um, who gets kind of to be the voice or the face of the league um, and how especially it gets talked about within kind of industry press. Yeah, that makes sense. The reason I, I bring that up is because especially on ESPN plus that they have uh, La Liga now, the Latin or Hispanic contingent that supports Barcelona or Real Madrid is huge. And so a oh, lot yeah. of them, a lot of friends that I know got ESPN plus just to watch them and they don't right. watch the they don't watch the Premier League. They don't watch MLS. They only watch Barcelona and Real Madrid. Yeah, and, then... and it's interesting to trace some of those, like uh, La Liga, especially. Um, you know, BN Sports was mm -hmm. a real big player in part because they had the rights yeah. in the U.S. to that. Um, but they have some. They have really lessened their influence in recent years because they've mm -hmm. lost a lot of the major major league rights but they were um for a couple of years there they were the main uh cable provider for la liga and bundesliga and now and we have the french league as well i think and the front liga right mm -hmm. um and now it's a little bit more dispersed and espn plus in part because when disney you know the disney money the disney bundle the giant disney conglomerate yeah. uh wanted to uh, be able to bundle ESPN Plus with Hulu and Disney Plus upon Disney Plus's launch. Um, they were really invested in kind of amplifying the, the ESPN mm -hmm. Plus side because um, that hit the kind of key quadrants that the other two streamers didn't. Yeah. Um, and so they bought up a, a lot of kind of rights or at least partial rights uh, to fill in that. But, you know, and then we've got DAZN, um, mm -hmm. which is uh, really making big strides in terms of, uh, especially on YouTube. Um, like I'm presenting some research I've done on their, um, their broadcast for the Women's uh, Champions League on, mm -hmm. on YouTube in the last uh, year and a half or so, which has been really stellar. Um, mm -hmm. it, the YouTube production, like it, for being on YouTube and it's ad-based, they've really invested a lot of money in production values for the broadcast of uh, the Women's Champions League. Um, and it really shows. And then you get, you know, the, the big 
final, which was a couple of weeks ago of, uh, you know, all feminine uh, Olympia Leonese and um, I think it was Barca. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was like almost 80,000 people in the stands and they have multiple different um, simultaneous multilingual broadcasts. So there's an English language broadcast, there's mm -hmm. a German broadcast, there's a Spanish broadcast. Um, so the high production values, easy accessible, they've really grown mm -hmm. uh, the imprint of the league in kind of the, the media space to the point that it is, um, a lot of people have been holding it up like the DAZN <laughs> broadcast is like, this is worthy of the Women's Champions League as being some of the, if not the best club teams in the world. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think speaking of, well, the ESPN Plus bundle was something that I was very happy with when it came out and I immediately got it. But um, one, one of the things you mentioned about the YouTube broadcasting, and we talked about this before with Twitch, is I think the barriers to entry for broadcasting live sporting events uh, in terms of cost and technology has gone way down. Like um, the Arena Soccer League now broadcasts on Twitch, their games on Twitch. Um, there's another platform called uh, Eleven Sports. But the, the the platforms to stream and broadcast live sporting events, have, like even if the production quality is not right, if you don't have – Joe Buck and Troy Aikman in your booth, you can still have, you can still have a live stream and people can still tune in. It's almost like kind of a, a grassroots sort of movement is, is growing a bit because people will tune in to see like, Oh, my friend is playing on this USL two team or my friend is playing on this MASL team. Um, yeah. And they'd rather tune in to watch their friend than just like pop on a baseball game that they will half pay attention to. And so I, I I don't know if you've seen a shift in that with your research and kind of what you've been doing, but that's something yeah. that I've noticed in my own, in my personal life. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This is where that discussion about YouTube comes into play with what's going on in 2022 with kind of sports broadcasting, mm -hmm. um, not just on YouTube, but that sense of um, part of what YouTube shows, but also part of what we've seen happening in television much more broadly is that a small but devoted audience that is deeply engaged with the product, being the league or the team or what have you, um, there are these leagues, these teams, these corporations are really finding ways to maximize that as value. And so, like you said, uh, Twitch has been a key place for that, uh, especially some of these sports leagues will like allow for co-streams of live games to really get, you know, that um, engagement uh, uh, potentially and kind of build up the fan base or the live chat during it, which allows mm -hmm. for a kind of a live reactions and building community in the stream, um, you know, commentary. Although sometimes there are some really intense rules that are that cause tension. I was recently watching a Washington Spirit NWSL game on mm -hmm. Twitch and Trinity Rodman, who is like, you know, mm -hmm. this wonderkind, highest yeah. play, you know, biggest contract the league has ever uh, given, really pushing forward in terms of like pay equity um, and amazing soccer player just all around. And but she's like, I think she just turned 20. Yeah. <laughs> 
but she was out for COVID protocols, um, mm-hmm. I believe. And there was some rule that saying like, please keep comments to the players that are on the pitch. And so like there was some back and forth about people wanting to talk about Trinity Rodman more generally and some of the rules being like, hey, let's focus on the game that's actually being played. Yeah. Right? Um, and that I think that might be a NWSL moderation thing or I, I'm not entirely sure. I only came in kind of towards the end when people were complaining about that they <laughs> weren't able to talk about Trinity Rodman. That's a bit um, interesting because they do that in like other leagues. Like if somebody's out in the NFL, like if the, if like – Tom Brady wasn't playing for whatever reason, like they'd still talk about Tom Brady. Yeah. I mean, I think part, this very cynical part of me is like, Hey, let's keep the talking about how COVID's still running rampant to a minimum. Um, yeah. But that's just the very kind of cynical part of me. Um, mm. But it's also like, there is a problem, especially in women's sports of, um, you know, talking about players that aren't, playing now um, or comparisons to or connections to like men's players there's a lot of like and this player is married to this other sports person um, or you know like we saw it a lot with Julie Ertz where people yeah. talk about you know her being the wife of the NFL player instead of being like hey multiple world cup winner yeah. and one of the greatest number six the U.S. women's never national team has ever seen yeah she's crazy good yeah. So I, there are a lot of just kind of weird things that are still working out the system. But that core kind of um, devoted audience is really valuable in sports because not only are they really visible for advertisers, um, they also kind of present, oftentimes they will travel to go to see games, sometimes from great distances, especially uh, Mm -hmm. in women's leagues or smaller leagues, or as you said, if they know someone on the team or associated with the team, um, then, you know, there's a lot more kind of room for everybody who needs to make profit from this situation to be able to get it instead of just, um, you know, people who casually view. Yeah. Yes. I could speak to the distance thing. We were playing a home game, USL 2. And our team is new and we don't have like the full out stadium built out yet. It's like undergoing renovations or whatever, but a group of fans from the team that we were playing against traveled like three hours with flags and drums and like all sorts. And like, we don't get paid for that. Like we don't get paid to play for this league, but they still come and like, whether they're related to people on the team or not, it's like that's a long way to travel with flags and with drums and with like they have like the flares when they score and like oh, like yeah. every like everything, and so it's a it's a bit of like an untapped it's a it's to me it's a bit of a catch twenty two right because you want those people to have like you want a bit more money in it for everyone involved to put their time in, um, but also I think. Twitch could be the way to do that potentially. And I don't know, right. There's a lot of things that go on with that USL two, right. College eligibility and all the other stuff. Like that's, that's a different um, problem to be solved, but Twitch, it Twitch is interesting to me because when our MASL team started streaming on Twitch, that was one of the, I had talked to the owner who I had known for, I mean, the owner's like 
30. So it's like me and him have been friends, which is how I, anyways, we were having a conversation about what to like, how to stream the games. And I was like, why don't you do Twitch? And he was like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't even consider that. Cause I thought it was just video games. And it's like, yeah, you might like, you might as well do Twitch. I like, why would you not do Twitch? Because it's an easy streaming platform. If you can get on the front page for whatever reason, then you can get to a whole new audience. I feel like that's an untapped sports market rather than like 11 sports is fine. But it's not, I was like, why would you not stream on YouTube or Twitch? Because there's a, there's a base there. 11 Sports is literally just soccer games. You could go somewhere. But I don't know, like, have you seen the growth with that with live sports? And if so, what, what do you think the impact would be on some of these other streaming platforms, the ESPN Pluses of the world, the Paramount Pluses of the world, right? If they start losing people to these more grassroots, like, fan bases. Have you seen that? Or is that two separate, like, things? Well... I think that for the most part, they're somewhat separate. Um, you know, it's that especially for the kind of fan bases that are like into soccer in the mm. U.S. media context, it it's very difficult to see the top world leagues, uh, especially like the Premier League, and you know. I don't think maybe not, not not them, but like maybe like um, maybe MLS viewership potentially, um, like a like a USL Championship type type level, or like a or like a League Two in England, like that sort of level where it's yeah. like they're professional and they're on TV, but like it's hard to get them on TV because those primetime slots are taken by right. And whoever. I think that you're right that more um, kind of direct to consumer uh, or kind of self publish platforms like Twitch are a way for those teams or leagues that are like deemed not valuable enough to traditional kind of media Mm -hmm. platforms or streaming services to be able to get out there to uh, broadcast their games and be able to connect directly to their fan base. Um, And, you know, in recent years, we have seen more especially of more niche-oriented or, or smaller sports leagues and teams um, broadcasting on Twitch their games, sometimes domestically. Oftentimes, it's also a way to expand to a global market. So like the NWSL, for example, the National Women's Soccer League, um, developed a multi-tiered uh, rights deal a couple of years ago uh, with CBS. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, CBS and CBS Sports uh, and Paramount Plus get the vast majority of games in the U.S. Generally, it's only, I think, two or three games on big CBS for broadcast. Um, And then uh, maybe a dozen or so throughout the season, including the championship, um, the Champions Cup, uh, Challenge Cup, sorry, the preseason tournament um, on CBS Sports. And then the vast majority on Paramount Plus, which is, you know, subscription-based yeah, behind uh, streaming, the paywall. behind the paywall, right? But occasionally one of the domestic games will be on Twitch. So I was saying just like about a week ago, Washington Spirit game was on Twitch. Um, but the majority of the, the broadcasts for international viewers are available on Twitch. So mm. outside of the U.S., Twitch is the primary uh, way to watch a lot of NWSL games. Um, And it, so, but like Twitch is known by CBS. So it was more of a way of like saying, okay, here's our CBS deal. And then we've made this separate deal with Amazon, which owns Twitch to kind of 
make our games available um yeah internationally yeah that was why i brought that up because you're not limited to where they're broadcasting from with with something like twitch Mm -hmm. um and especially for leagues like that the most exposure they can get is better from from that reason because they're not they're not getting helped by by the big companies they kind of have to help themselves and so like and we've seen that with like the the shift from lifetime nwsl game of the weeks um which was the only cable broadcast uh previously the nwsl is fascinating and i'm working on kind of that's my starting chapter for my book so that's Mm -hmm. what i'm i'm most familiar about right initially games were broadcast on youtube the worst quality (laughs) some of those broadcasts ever like i went to boston breakers games Mm -hmm. and then i'd watch them on the screen and be like how in the hell did anybody follow what was going on um and just like really terrible quality because they didn't have the infrastructure for it um but some great you know commentary because you know it was like people like Lori Lindsay uh who played soccer at elite level then could kind of move into this new space but they were on YouTube and then there was a streaming rights deal with Go90, which was Verizon's attempt at a streaming platform. I remember that. Yeah. Um, that was just, it would crash every single game. <laughs> it oh, was hi. such a terrible system. Um, and it, you know, didn't last very long. And then it was like Lifetime, because it's television for women, got the rights for one NWSL game a week on Saturdays. And it's just like, what is this doing for the league? This is really yeah. not not growing the fan base in the way we want it. And then mm. finally, the deal with CBS. And as soon as an NWSL game was put on CBS, it was like competitive numbers with MLS games. Yeah, um, well, that's and MLS just, isn't... <laughs> right. Never, but, never mind. <laughs> I mean, yes, MLS could do significantly better in terms of the ratings, but... As far as like industry logics going, that was a big surprise for the TV industry, even if it's not as big a surprise for people who are like really aware of yeah. what's going on in U.S. soccer. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The other thing, though, with with all these new broadcasts, is it gives the so I've got several friends that are in like sports journalism or that sort of field, and the opportunities to become a broadcaster is tenfold now what it was and like we're like we were talking about earlier like the quality of the youtube stream for your boston breakers games but now the technology is getting to a point where it's so much more affordable that the barriers to entry like we were talking about earlier is is almost it's not removed but yeah basically for even for like nwsl or for usl for these like they don't have to have that much money to have like like do you know what a vo camera is um I'm just blanking at the moment. It's like you put it up on a giant tripod and it's got technology in it that tracks the ball. And like you don't, and right. it's like a decent, but they're not that expensive. It's like a couple grand. And so for any league like that has like that, when you save up for a couple seasons and you can get a camera and then just put it on Twitch, it's like, and it's there. Yeah, and so exactly. it makes it the opportunities for growth, I think is yeah. great but at the same time the amount of time that people have to consume is still you still only have the 24 hours in the it's day still finite Absolutely. yeah and so that's a weird one in terms of like 
that goes back to my question earlier about are the ESPN pluses of the world concerned at all, not necessarily because of numbers, but because of time. And if if the access to the local ones that they'd rather watch is starting to exist and they start, consumers start to put their time into that rather than a national one. That was more what I was getting at with that question without full, I just fully like fleshed it out now, but that was more what I was getting at. Does that make sense? Kind of, have you seen that at all? Uh, not yet, just because yeah. soccer is still essentially like a growing sport mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, and so, you know, the there's a kind of a more is more. Uh, yeah. Sense. yeah, that makes sense. Right? And instead, what people are tuning out of are sometimes the big four sports, um, sometimes yeah. scripted content or, you know, other forms of programming, like um, especially in recent years, just at least anecdotally, people have talked about is just like, well, I'm, you know, I have to devote how many hours before a show gets good. I'm just going to watch my sports teams because at least there it's like a set amount of time. It's also more based into daily to like uh, weekly and, and seasonal routines, mm-hmm. right? Where we know when the seasons of these leagues are going to happen and we can kind of orient our daily routines around when the games are um, or yeah. when the games that we want to watch are kind of more so than, you know, in a way that gets back to a kind of more standard programming model than on demand. And, you know, what we've seen from on demand like streaming is actually choice fatigue is starting to become a real problem Um, and and the sense of like with increased serialization especially in scripted series it is like oh my god if i want to watch this show i have to watch 50 hours of this show that's a lot let me just pop on the office instead yeah right or you know it's like whatever's streaming on twitch or whatever is you know top of the page on youtube or Mm -hmm. you know it's like oh well you know i'll do my work now so i can watch my soccer game you know at 8 p.m or or, you know uh, saturday or whatever um and so what we're seeing is actually sports continues to be a really kind of has a solid foundation uh, in kind of audience attention mm-hmm. and who's watching it and uh, kind of especially sports women's sports and more niche sports are growing a lot and the big sports especially you know NFL has had a lot of controversies and there is um, a there has been some talk about kind of losing audiences in part because of the ethics of American football and the kind of cost that it has. Well, but I mean, like, no, it makes sense. I laugh because they they do it to themselves. Exactly. Like the way they approach racial justice, the way they approach how they take care, most cases don't of the players that have like traumatic brain injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the fraught relationship with college football, we could say, Um, you know, there are, are certain things that are starting to turn certain segments of that audience off potentially mm-hmm. and other sports are really growing in the u.s um that have really solid and and long-running fan bases in other countries so like f1 racing yes, has yeah. had this kind of explosion of tv rights and fandoms um and of course like 
TV series to go along with it. Mm -hmm. um, and soccer is kind of part of that boom. Um, with streaming services and in the last 10 or 15 years, being able to get access to international games uh, really, really shifted uh, how much attention, how many hours of, of soccer U.S. Um, media companies are interested in. And they're still like paying so much for rights. So they're going to continue to pay a lot to promote those leagues um, so that they get the good return on their investments. And live, live events are still the main way towards solid advertising revenue. Even yeah. soccer, which has mm -hmm. far fewer commercial breaks uh, than kind of almost any other televised sport liveness is what had been the fundamental categorization of television at its origin has come back around to being uh, kind of really, really significant for maintaining profits for kind of media companies. And so live sports at any point of the day is still going to be better ad revenue um, than remediated reruns etc yeah that makes total sense i think it goes back a bit to the like the authenticity that i think people were missing but also uh, yeah like I, for soccer especially i remember when i was on my high school during the summer when i wasn't working and just like mowing lawns and stuff if i wanted to watch soccer i'd have to wait on fs1 until like they had like a three-hour block where they would do some soccer stuff and then that would be it and now if if I, I don't have time to do this, but if I wanted to have soccer on 24 seven, I could. Yeah. And it's, I love it, <laughs> but yeah. um, it's just, but like, you're, it's like, I feel like you can do that with almost everything now, just based on the amount of, I don't know. It's been, it's been really interesting to see for me, like, cause I don't, I'm obviously you're more in the weeds than I am, but just from, a, from an, like an observer perspective, the growth of, people that are that want to put the time in to do something like this podcast or something like if it's like if I could do this only soccer related right people are doing that and they're putting the time in and they're getting right there they might not be getting paid a lot but it's allowing people to kind of it's a different hobby is hobby the right word I don't know it's a different passion that it, like the the barriers to entry have kind of fallen and people are able to pursue the more niche things that I think they want to pursue. And I think that's a good thing overall. I don't, yeah, it's been really cool to watch happen. And, you know, to go back to that kind of like how outside of the kind of big names and YouTube people make money, right. What we're seeing is the kind of growth of the influencer class into mm -hmm. all these other kind of different areas. What started mostly kind of, on YouTube and Instagram and in these kind of very particular areas is expanding forward. And so companies are willing to pay for sponsored content, for ads, for really small niches like micro influencers that they mm -hmm. see as being like valuable to that identifiable niche. And like, we see it a lot in soccer, right? There are you know, Ashlyn Harris um, is, mm -hmm. you know, she, of course, is not like a small stage influencer, but yeah. part of how she is making her money and kind of expanding her brand beyond just what she does on, on the soccer field, especially as it seems likely she won't kind of be in the U.S. women's national team mix again, is 
really focusing on Instagram, TikTok. Um, she's got a lot of partnerships and she generally makes, you know, top 10, top 20, top 50 lists of the, uh, you know, most successful sports influencers, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're mm -hmm. seeing that, especially with smaller niche sports and sports stars, thinking about that way and more like direct sponsorship to speak to kind of the um, audience that they know they have and then can show to potential sponsors of like, this is who we speak to this. And they trust me because it's mostly occurring through uh, kind of social media um, or YouTube that as, as we talked about shows um, and is, is really more visible in terms of engagements um, mm -hmm. and the like relationship that fans feel they have. Uh, with these celebrities. And, and in women's sports, we see this really taking place. So I've, I, um, you know, I had another recent publication that was really fun to do that was looking at Sue Bird and Megan Rapinoe's Instagram Live talk show during the pandemic. Uh, they yeah. would get on Instagram Live, like in the lockdown period of the pandemic in the spring of 2020, um, like every Saturday night for between an hour and four hours and have a live talk show um, where they did things like Sue Bird would cut Megan Rapinoe's very famous hair while being instructed in a, you know, simultaneously by her hairdresser. Um, and it was this real, like, display of kind of intimacy in some ways. Mm -hmm. We were literally brought into this kind of actually a little tense moment between one of the most famous couples in women's sports um, to multiple gold medalists. And it was just like, one of them is really intense about the hair and the other one is trying her best. And there are a couple of moments where you actually see Megan Rapinoe be like really tense about if, <laughs> if it's working or not. Um, and like another episode that was really famous where they had Diana Taurasi on and mm -hmm. Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi just kind of kept drinking wine and talking, and that was the one that went for four hours, and they got progressively, like, they didn't get super drunk, but Rubino yeah. got to the point where she just, like, left the screen, and then 20 minutes later is yelling out from off screen, is like, it's Instagram Live, it shouldn't last four hours, <laughs> and so... It is this kind of moment where we're really getting this look into, you know, to superstars of their sports, probably some of the kind of best that have ever been. Um, but an intimate look into their relatively small condo in Connecticut, mm -hmm. where they're brought locked down just like everybody else. But I argue part of the reason why they allowed for all of that kind of authenticity really on display is because they they had to uh do something to maintain their relationship with their fans because mm. they literally could not keep doing their jobs yeah they because their leagues were shut down and both of their leagues in 2020 were at kind of inflection points the mm. wnba was coming up on their 25th anniversary but they were still like had never turned a real profit um, as a league. And so there was a lot of like, 
where is the WNBA going? Nobody really knows. And Sue Bird was coming up on retirement as well. Um, and the NWSL is just like the third major attempt at a professional women's soccer league and the only one to last more than three years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it too was like its rights deals were coming up. There was a real sense that if the 2020 season didn't happen for the NWSL, it wasn't clear that the league would be able to come back from it. And that's part of why the league actually applied for and got a PPP loan um, during the pandemic. And the, that was also the incentive as to why they were the first North American um, sport, uh, team sports league to go back to playing in the pandemic with the bubble challenge cup in 2020. Yeah. It was because market drives that they had to, mm-hmm. but what we see with like Sue Bird and, and Megan Rapinoe's A Touch More talk show was the kind of, there is more of a necessity for um, people in precarious sports leagues, even at the superstar level, to maintain their kind of level of, how can I best put this, um, potential profitability as influencers to maintain that. And whereas in a lot of men's sports leagues, there's not the danger of people forgetting your name or you losing your contract or your league folding with women's sports. If like one, the one two blow of both their leagues, not being able to, you know, at that point when they were doing the talk show, unclear if they were going to have 2020 seasons and no Olympics, which both of them were going to play in. Yeah. Right. So there is this kind of like what we see with things like that is how valuable this influencer model can be for these more niche sports, but also mm-hmm. like that there's more of a necessity for that because yeah. they don't have access to kind of the, the kinds of rarefied media heights that um, the more dominant leagues and sports get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think even even the men's sports at the lower levels are are in a similar position as, yeah. as that. Um, my little brother actually has a YouTube channel for like he's the only con. He's there's like it's this really niche video game called Stormbound. Shout out Popular Eagle. Um, but he went and talked to the people that developed the game, and they gave him money, even though he's got like a couple thousand subscribers, is because he's so niche that he's able to get money like he's able to get money and free stuff on the video game based on on that little niche that he's yeah. carved out for himself and I mean, paying someone on youtube a couple of thousand dollars is often kind of makes more sense in a dollars and cents mode yeah. than paying to produce and then um pay to put a commercial on the air yeah 100 percent. Right? um when is this book are you still working do you have you do have like a projected date no no academic publishing is a beast and a half um so you know it's like i'm still in early stages of the book um and you know if anybody is interested in talking to me for it i'm happy to i might send you an email to talk about your experiences Mm -hmm. um but you know i've done some research i was like i went to the women's world cup with the american outlaws to see how Uh, and then recorded every broadcast Mm -hmm. and so I was able to compare what was going on on the ground with the supporters which are often like um, outside of World Cup 
having to fly, fly to and pay for French lodging. Um, you know, supporters groups can be way more inclusive than the kinds of TV audiences that are being mm -hmm. catered to, mm -hmm. um, right? So there are d multiple levels of like fandoms and who gets to matter to television yeah. versus who gets to matter to the teams. Um, so I'm working on, I've got a couple of articles uh, working, but academic publishing is like, once I get the book written, then it's like a year of peer review and then mm -hmm. a year of like publication process. So maybe Ooh. 2025. <laughs> um, That's rough. But that means that anybody who wants to talk to it with me is like, is not going to make big splashy headlines. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you get to be taught in my sports media classes. Hey, well, there you go. And then your other book is called what again? Uh, my book came out in 2020. It's called Divine Programming, Negotiation, Negotiating Christianity on American um, Primetime Dramas, 1996-2016. Um, Fair enough. You know we've been chatting for an hour and a half already, yeah? I mean, listen, you get it. We get talking about soccer. You know, two soccer fans can go on forever. Um, For sure. But this was really great uh, chatting with you. Yeah, you too. I'd love to chat to you about your or with you about your other about your book. Um, but I feel like we would also get into a very lengthy conversation about that as well. Yeah, maybe in a different different context uh, than your podcast because I know. I tend to speak in paragraphs and sometimes multiple paragraphs. So I'm yeah, sure that fine. your listeners have had enough of me by now. Oh, I don't know about that. I'm sure they'd love to have you back. Um, I really appreciate your time. Learned a lot. This is always a very interesting world for me. It's uh, less like, even though it's you come at it from an academic perspective, it's less academic than like chemistry so yeah so i mean that's the thing is like television studies as a field is about empowering people to think about television in different ways and so mm -hmm. if it was all academic ease and all of this kind of like impenetrable jargon then that's part of the goal left to the side like, yeah. I want my students, sorry to hit the mic, uh, I no, want my students to leave a class for me feeling empowered about their understanding of, of television um, and thinking through how they want to approach it. And also, like, for a very little thing, stop feeling bad about liking the things they like on TV. The amount of students I've had who talk to me about, like, the guilty pleasure TV shows that they love, I was like, if it's, you know, entertaining you, then why do you feel guilty about it? You feel guilty about it because some, you know, gatekeeper on high atop the thing has said that this is a way of watching television or a form of television that's less worthy. Mm. And that's just not the case. Usually that's wrapped up in class and gender and, and uh, kind of racial ideas, racialized ideas about what is good and what is bad. And instead, if we have a lot more open and curious minds um, and accepting sense of like, you can like bad TV, you can like bad movies. And in fact, you liking them maybe couners the idea that they are bad. Mm. Um, Fair so, enough. You know, Everybody's got the their, own, of, uh, their own tastes and opinions and stuff. So Exactly. Right? I just like want like, want. 
normalize saying great for you, maybe not for me, instead of saying, oh, that that show is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Although there are some bad shows. There are some bad shows, (laughs) but you can also like find as a big fan of like midnight movies and failed uh, B movies, you can find a lot of pleasure in bad media texts as well for their badness. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, where do you have a website or anything that the people can come that the people can find your your work at? Um, not really. It's you know, um, I've got a profile on Google Scholar, which is where some of my work is. I have a website, charlottehowell.net, but that's mostly old kind of blog posts, but mm-hmm. it's all there if people want it. I'm on mm-hmm. Twitter, um, but yeah, it's not really centralized anywhere because all my stuff gets published in different journals that are often sadly behind paywalls. But if anybody ah, is interested enough. in reading anything I've written, I'm happy to um, send you, uh, you know, PDFs of any article that's behind a paywall. Uh, scholarship and, and knowledge should always be free. And if there's anything I can do to help with that, happy to do so, happy to disseminate. Awesome. I agree wholeheartedly. All right. We'll put all those links down in the description um guys if you got if you want to read any of her stuff shoot me a a message or something or you can shoot charlotte a message and we'll try and help you out um with that guys we'll see you guys next time peace thank you